Imagine if we could determine the error in a human memory or identify a marker of guilt in a defendant. What about excusing a criminal from legal punishment because their brain says they were a victim of internal struggle? Is free will a myth? These are just a few of the fascinating questions we can ponder when we think of how neuroscience can be applied to the courtroom. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again! For those who don't know me, my name is Ev, and I am your host for the season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders. Hi everyone, I'm Elena, also a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's, and my research focuses on exploring eating behavior and circadian dysfunction in mood disorders, as well as novel tools for assessment and treatment. Along with some other amazing grad students, we've put together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. The podcast is entirely student-run and researched. We'll be tackling a variety of topics relating to cutting-edge research or controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics relating to the brain and to human behavior. In this episode, we'll be continuing our exploration of neurolaw and all the juicy controversies that are associated with it. For those who are new here, you might want to listen to our part one first, where we introduce Dr. Chandler and discuss things like psychopaths, neuroimaging techniques in the courtroom, addressing blame in cognitively impaired individuals, and philosophy. We left you on a nice little cliffhanger and are getting into topics that have increased in relevance over the past few years. Yep, we're going to talk about biomarkers and AI. Oh, and also about selling your information to companies or using it against you in the court. Elena, can you take us back to where we left off? You mentioned the idea of using biomarkers for guilt. Yeah, so going back to the concept of biomarkers for criminal activity, when I say biomarker, I'm basically referring to a characteristic of an individual that we can measure and which tells us something about the individual's brain and behavior, kind of like a fingerprint or other kind of clue. So here's what I asked Dr. Chandler about this. I wonder if you think in the future, as we sort of understand these disorders more, if they're like you said, could be biomarkers or things that we can use to sort of say, okay, this person is at risk of sort of any type of criminal activity and then sort of implement an early intervention for that. Do you think that that's a possibility in the future? Hmm. Yeah, it's possible. There's a bunch of concerns that flow from this. One is there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of telling people Mm. you are at risk of this thing. So we have to be very careful of not creating the very outcomes that we are ostensibly trying to avoid. There's that. I mean, the self-fulfilling prophecy in social psychology is well-documented across a whole range of different contexts. It's under known as the Pygmalion effect, where people actually perform well because they're expected to do so, or the Golem effect. They perform badly because they're expected to perform badly. And this is, as I understand it anyway, a very robust finding. And so there's, a, I think, a risk if we start to try to get ahead and predict on the basis of people's brains what they're going to do. Now, we do permit a certain amount of prediction and preemptive intervention in the law already, but usually it's after conviction. So it's very common after someone's convicted of an offense to do these forensic risk assessments mm-hmm. where we have, the, and Canada has been very active in the research underlying these. And this involves looking at huge data sets of people and finding out what are the factors associated with violence in the future or sex offending in the future or whatever it is. 
And they look at all these factors, and then they use this as a model to look at individual people and to assign them to different risk categories, depending on how well they fit the model of recidivism. Just a little interruption on my end to talk about recidivism. Recidivism is the tendency for a convicted criminal to reoffend. So it's kind of like if you stole your sister's cute top in the past, will you do it again? Spoiler alert, yes, I will be stealing her clothes again. She has a way cooler taste in clothes than me. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast or you'll have some explaining to do. Oh, she already knows. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to Dr. Chandler. So this is commonplace. This is used in courts every day across Canada, but in the context of people who've already been convicted. And they're used for a whole range of purposes. What sentence to give, whether to give parole, whether to let people have a reduced like maximum security versus medium security, like different placements, whether to allow for day passes, all sorts of things like that. And there has been some concern about these. There's a Supreme Court case called Ewart a couple of years ago now, which asked the question, can we apply these instruments to an Indigenous man since if the whole model was based largely on non-Indigenous, mostly Caucasian men? And is it valid for subpopulations? And in a way, this is a reflection of the current or an instance or a parallel, let's call it that way, mm -hmm. a parallel of the current concern about use of algorithmic decision making and AI to, you know, use machine learning to make models of things that are actually quite opaque to the rest of us, and to then spit out answers about individual people based on this large machine learned model. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of concern about whether this is going to bake in certain forms of bias and discrimination, because the data that is used on which the model is trained is maybe not reflective of all the people who are later subject to the model. So, in a way, this forensic risk assessment is sort of a, like a mini version of that current big debate. And I think if we're starting to look at preemption and prediction, again, we have to ask ourselves if we're starting to use neuroscience to try to look at brains and make predictions and intervene early, when we're going from this group model to the individual, what sorts of slippage and inaccuracies and biases might end up influencing being an effect, shall I say. And so that is another issue. So I've mentioned the path dependence, self-fulfilling prophecy, but also this issue about validity for subgroups and the opacity perhaps of the information that is being built into the model. So I don't know if these kinds of problems are going to be an acute problem if we go in the direction of trying to learn more about brains and intervene early. Maybe we can mitigate the harms of both of those, and maybe the issue about bias won't be as acute since it's just looking at particular brain information as opposed to a whole host of other factors. But I think we need to be, you know, careful about both of those things and maybe other things too that I'm missing. Yeah, the whole hype behind using AI for everything is a little dangerous. If you're going to be evaluating and doing forensic risk assessments entirely based on AI, you have to make sure that your data set represents all the communities out there. And that's a pretty difficult task. And unfortunately, if you're evaluating someone's risk of recidivism by taking them out of their cultural and social context, you run the risk of poorly evaluating them and poorly reflecting their risk of recidivism. I mean, we make court decisions on a case-by-case -case basis to avoid this exact problem. Yeah, exactly. Using larger data sets of information is great for statistical power in science, but when applying this information to certain individuals, it may not always be as accurate. Individuals don't always represent the average. We're all unique. 
So I wonder if this has the potential to perpetuate bias. Especially with neuroimaging data, these studies are sometimes based on data from thousands of individuals. So how can we be sure the average of those individuals is the same as the individual in front of us in the courtroom? I asked Dr. Chandler about how neuroscience has the potential to incorrectly sway people in the courtroom too. And also, do you think that applying neuroscience to the courtroom, there could be challenges presented for, let's say, like the jury or for the general population that might not understand the limitations of these methods or the unique biases? People might see the neuroimaging evidence and think, oh, wow, like science proved it. So we should believe the science. And do you think that that sort of could sway people to sort of side with the neuroscience more easily? It is possible. I think so. There are various rules of evidence, actually, that govern the admission of scientific evidence. So the court has to meet a certain threshold of reliability. There's special tests for novel scientific evidence. And furthermore, it has to be necessary. So you can't just come in with all sorts of scientific evidence that's actually not necessary to resolve a legal problem. And amongst the admissibility rules, one of the considerations the court is supposed to take into consideration is whether it will have an undue effect on the jury. Will it bias the jury? Will it be so overwhelmed that we'll just defer to the expert presenting that evidence? So it's supposed to be a consideration whether or not to admit it. So I think it's something we have to watch. Mm -hmm. There are people also trying to do mock jury trials to see whether, in fact, juries are completely blown away by, you know, colorful pictures of brains and just Mm -hmm. go with whatever that evidence was. So that's something we should keep an eye on for sure. To be fair, in a lot of cases, even people in the field of neuroscience don't entirely understand the limitations of complicated techniques because there's so many of them. And the limitations, for the most part, are caused by very small details. So if you want to truly understand the limitations, you need to understand the technique quite well. It makes sense that you wouldn't want a technique that overshadows all the other evidence that is presented just because it's science, because each technique, scientific or not, has flaws. It's true, and using neuroimaging techniques as a source of evidence is one of the most controversial aspects of neurolaw. So what do we mean by these limitations exactly? Well, some argue that neuroimaging methods like fMRI, which I mentioned in the last episode, are not reliable enough to detect differences in brain activity associated with certain brain states. Regardless, these methods are still being used for this purpose, just like the case we talked about in part one. Yeah, there are also different ways that bias can be introduced in neuroimaging data, right? Yeah, analyzing Analyzing fMRI data requires specialized expertise, but there isn't much agreement on how to analyze and interpret neuroimaging data in legal settings yet, which could lead to inconsistencies and variability in the interpretations of the data. This in turn could also be influenced by the subjective bias of the researchers. The study design is another way bias could be introduced in terms of the specific tasks or stimuli that are used to elicit brain activity. Also, the participants volunteering for the study could be influenced by race, ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic status. This all makes it really hard to compare across studies. And with all that being said, Dr. Chandler also describes a bit about how even using evidence gathered from scientific techniques with many of these limitations is better than no scientific evidence at all. In law, we need to come to a conclusion about who did it, who is responsible, and what level of evidence is acceptable to back it up. A somewhat educated guess is better than just a straight-up guess. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Speaking about guessing, Dr. Chandler has been doing some work on the acceptability of neuroimaging methods as essentially lie detectors. Here's what she thinks about neuroscience methods and if they should be used in lie detection. For example, there has been a lot of discussion about using both EEG and fMRI to identify lies. So use it as a form of neuroscientific polygraph test, right? Okay, 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 okay. I have to interrupt this again. There's a lot of words that need some explaining here. Starting off with EEG. An EEG, or electroencephalogram, is a common technique that's used to measure electrical activity that is produced in different regions of the brain when they're active. We measure that activity with electrodes that are placed on the head. When we talk about the P300 peak, it's known as a pretty reliable marker in activity that we see on an EEG following the presentation of some kind of stimulus, like a sound, an image, a tactile stimulation, etc. When we're talking about salient information, we mean information that is pretty noticeable compared to the rest that's going on. And the last one I want to explain here is fMRI. We talked briefly about the MRIs with Elena, but here's a bit of a recap. So there's two types of MRIs. There's functional MRIs, that's the one we're talking about here, and anatomical or structural MRIs that are used to look at precise anatomical regions and their volumes. fMRIs, on the other hand, they use what's called the bold signal, and that depends on the level of oxygen in blood to determine what parts of the brain are active at any given time. So as an example, you could be asked to look at a video inside an MRI machine, and your visual cortex would become active pretty quickly. And we would see that because the level of oxygen in your blood in that specific area of your brain would be increased when you're watching the video. Back to Dr. Chandler. Okay. And so EEG is this idea of brain fingerprinting is looking for the P300 response to salient information. And fMRI lie detection runs on the idea that a brain of someone who's lying looks different from the brain of someone who's telling the truth. That mm -hmm. to lie, you have to do more things with different parts of your brain than to tell the truth. So in the United States, where there have been a handful of attempts to introduce this, it's been rejected. But here's something interesting. I'm doing research with a student right now looking at the case law in India, where there's a couple hundred cases accepting this so-called brain fingerprinting, EEG-based mm -hmm. lie detection. So this is pretty interesting. It's being accepted as sufficiently valid in that country. And thinking about the socio-legal reasons why that is the case is pretty interesting. Why would it be accepted there and seen as sufficiently yeah. valid, but in the United States not? And we can sort of look back at, well, what's the alternative? Well, mm, we look at someone and we try to guess whether they're lying or not. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting that people are by and large pretty bad at that, mm -hmm. especially if they don't have sort of various forms of circumstantial evidence to help them judge how likely it is that someone's statement is the truth or not. There's also evidence that there's cross-cultural and interracial error and bias in lie detection. People who are better looking are more likely to believe than those who are not. So you can see all these factors that are completely irrelevant to whether someone's telling the truth or not that actually are currently operating. Wow. And so you ask yourself and you say, huh, would some form of flawed scientific approach for some people be preferable than having to stand up and try to convince some people who think you're lying? Mm -hmm. And in the United States, most of the people who have sought to propose this evidence have been people accused who are searching for ways to defend themselves. So is it unfair? Is it inappropriate? Clearly, if it's completely bogus, we shouldn't be wasting our time with it. If there's easy countermeasures, again, we shouldn't be just wasting our time with it. It's not going to tell us much that's valid. But 
at what threshold should we start to accept it, given that the alternative, certainly for some people, is maybe not that great? Mm -hmm. So anyway, this is a window into why it is that a legal system might say, hmm, maybe this might help a little bit, even if everyone else might think, whoa, this is nowhere near sort of robust enough to use. Yeah, that's such a good point that we as humans really aren't as good as we think we are when it comes to judging if people are lying or not. Now, I know there are big fans of criminal minds out there and of shows like that, but how much more valid is that than an EEG? And obviously, I don't have the answer to that. But it just goes back again to the idea of informed or semi-informed guess versus a purely judgment-based guess. And I guess if we look down the line, we probably won't even be talking about EEGs anymore. We'll be looking at BCIs. So brain-computer interfaces are basically technologies that involve a direct line of communication between the brain's activity and some kind of device like a computer. We already have these devices developed for the motor cortex, and they're super useful for people who are like quadriplegic, for example. But what if whatever data those BCIs collect could actually inform us on what's going on in other regions of the brain in real time? Or even tell us exactly what one person's mind says they were doing at a very specific point in time. Imagine... You're being accused of, I don't know, stabbing someone, for example. And your BCI could literally say that at that exact moment when the person was stabbed, your BCI registered that you were actually brushing your teeth. Pretty convincing, no? Yeah, I mean, the possibilities with BCIs are almost endless, and I'm sure we'll see more of this come to fruition over our lifetime. Dr. Chandler is actually very fascinated by BCIs, like many of us, and here's what she had to say about the topic. You see all this really interesting research in looking at the motor cortex and interpreting from actions in the motor cortex what someone's intended or imagined speech might be. So this picks up the movements of the vocal tract and wow. kind of turns that into sounds, which is completely remarkable wow. that this might yeah. be possible. Now, in that work, there's always like an autocorrect-like function trying to guess the most likely thing you're trying to say in a given context. So there's always some possible slippage between you know, what you're intending to say and what ends up being produced. It's at least in part a co-production based on what's most likely that you're trying to say. I'm also thinking about evidence of trying to reconstruct from the visual cortex what people are actually seeing. And could one broaden that into picking up someone's internal visual imagination? I'm one of those people who has almost no visual imagination, which I discover mm -hmm. is unusual. <laughs> so I don't even really know what you'd be picking up. But anyway, I'm assuming that people who have a really rich visual imagination, there's something going on in their brains that could be detected. And what one could do interesting things with that as well. Hey, it's me again. So how many people actually have a visual imagination? And what is it? Well, apparently, between one and 5% of the population cannot visualize or imagine things. And that's known as aphantasia. Interestingly, about 10 to 15% of people are on the other end of the spectrum with extremely vivid imagery and photogenic memories called hyperphantasia. The rest of us are somewhere in the middle in that spectrum with a mediocre ability to see things in our so-called mind's eye. Personally, I'm 
on the lower end of that spectrum. So there's like speech aspects of the internal mental space that could be picked up and detected. And there's a lot of interest also in trying to find out neural biomarkers for different symptoms of mental illness so as to do closed loop deep brain stimulation. So monitor the brain state and then stimulate only when there's a symptom that needs to be addressed, whether hallucination or a compulsion or something like that. And so all this interest in reading information from the brain and getting either helping a person to interact with the world or obtaining information that could be used for these other clinical purposes. But let's switch to thinking, what could they be used for, for forensic or legal purposes? And so could one, for example, pick up images from someone who's now paralyzed in terms of trying to identify people in the legal context? Now, we're well into sci-fi here. <laughs> I don't know if we're anywhere near being able to do that. But as a theoretical possibility, that's interesting. And my particular work that I think you're alluding to is I've become rather interested in thinking about how would we design a speech neuroprosthesis, something looking at intended speech so that it would be maximally useful in the court and in the legal context. So for very sort of high consequence, important decisions, what does that device have to look like and be able to do that would allow us to trust it? And so these decisions can be major consequences. So refusal of medically necessary treatment, a request for medical aid in dying, these life and death decisions. Mm -hmm. If we just say to someone who cannot communicate, well, you don't get to make those decisions, that is removing agency and autonomy that others have. But if we have this really complicated speech intermediary, how do we know for sure that we trust it? It's a little mm -hmm. bit different from having a translator in front of you between languages, right? Because anyone in principle who knows both linguistic codes can verify how good the translation is. With this brain-computer interface, how do we actually achieve the level of confidence in it that we are going to act on what comes out of it? And you can think of other applications. What about testifying in court? Tremendous amount turns on this. People who are accused of crimes, people who are victims of crimes and unable to testify are become, as the Supreme Court has said, even more vulnerable to abuse because they're easy targets who cannot kind of raise the alarm. So it's very, very important that people with significant communication impairments, and especially combined with mobility impairments, have the ability to communicate. And that's what's interesting and exciting about these technologies, but do raise these questions about, well, what does the law do with this? Do these communications satisfy our current requirements for testimonial competency and capacity? Should those rules be changed to allow for communication using these technologies? So I think this is an example of work I've done that gets well ahead of where the technology is, mostly because I think it's important to think about it now while we're in a position to design in certain features that might help us later on. I love that we discussed the idea that AI uses prediction based on probabilities because that's really trying to replicate what's happening in a courtroom too. When we judge if someone is guilty or not and the extent of their punishment, what we are using is also probabilities. The probability that someone did the crime, the probability that someone has the capacity to be held criminally responsible, probability that they would be a danger to society, etc, etc, etc. Another point that I particularly loved in this conversation was the whole idea that BCIs can be used to give someone back their agency and their autonomy, even if they're limited in their communication or in their motor capacities. It's such a fundamental principle in all things science and law and ethics, and it is really exciting that we're seeing this possibility in the future, you know, who knows how near. 
Yeah, giving someone with communication impairment the ability to communicate again is giving back their autonomy, and it's such an incredible achievement of BCIs. I think Dr. Chandler's work here really has the potential to help a lot of people. I also wondered, with these almost sci-fi-like concepts like biomarkers for psychopathy and predicting recidivism and brain-computer interfaces, there's a lot of promising but also scary potential for things that could happen. I asked Dr. Chandler what she's most concerned about and what she's excited about for the field moving forward. Oh gosh, so many things to talk yeah, about. I'm, I'm hugely excited about all of it. I think that mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of good, like that you've mentioned just now, of helping people, you know, regain more autonomy and agency and also to communicate and interact. That's a fundamental part of living in a culture, right? To be able yeah. to participate in it. So that's super exciting. I think some of the things I'm thinking about lately, especially when we think about BCIs and trying to actually read information about mental states from the brain, is we really have to get our act together in thinking about the use of that information. We are going to develop technologies that can gather a huge amount of information about brain activity in real time. And if there's any rule that's out there about information law and privacy law is that once we have information, we're going to find a whole bunch of uses for it. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to ask ourselves the question, which uses are permissible? Which ones do we not want to permit? So let me give you an example. There was a case a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018-ish in Ohio of a man who had a cardiac pacemaker and he was accused of the crime of arson and insurance fraud, burning down his house to get the insurance proceeds. Mm -hmm. The data of his pacemaker was subpoenaed and a cardiologist testified about whether it was likely that he was doing what he said he was doing at the time of the fire. So here's an example of an implanted medical device gathering physiological data in real time and then later being used in a completely different context and completely unrelated function to determine whether or not he was lying about something. And it seems highly likely to me that if people are wearing BCIs, I mean, very few are going to have implanted BCIs. This is expensive and risky. But if we move to less invasive ones that people are using for a whole range of more day-to-day activities, certainly that information will be interesting for other purposes. And it's not just court purposes. They're interesting, of course, to marketing and (laughs) a whole range of applications. So I worry more about the more significant personal information that can be accessed and used against the person in a more dramatic way. Those will be fewer cases, but I think we still have to think about that. In the past, we do have precedents of new types of information coming to be available and the law having to respond to decide what we can do with it. So once we became more sophisticated with DNA and we learned more about the genetics of various diseases, people started to get concerned about genetic discrimination in insurance, medical insurance and life insurance and things like that. And so There were calls for legislation, genetic non-discrimination legislation, limiting its utility in insurance context. Are we going to need to do something similar in terms of what we can use this neural data for? On the other hand, maybe this neural data is really useful and we do want to start monitoring, for example, alertness in people who have occupations that where a lapse in attention can have catastrophic consequences. So There's going to be a whole bunch of questions to be answered about how to use that information. So that's one thing I think about. I think there is a need also to try to walk a sober path between the hype and the dismissal of the potential social significance. So I see both sides of this. I see sometimes Mm -hmm. everyone hyping this like crazy. This is going to revolutionize this social domain. And then other people saying, this is ridiculous. You people are all sci-fi and you're just like, you think the sky is falling all the time and none of this ever happens. So I think both those critiques should be carefully borne in mind. I think it's a mistake 
not to anticipate and speculate about where this might go because that's how we start to try to be ready and prepare and also perhaps influence the development of some of these technologies. So I think that balance is important. I think another thing that worries me a little bit is that a lot of the research and the neuroengineering is being done in the private sector. And this is largely less amenable, it's less transparent. I mean, part of the academic research domain is all about publishing your stuff and open to the public. The knowledge is open to the public and is being published and scrutinized and peer-reviewed and subjected to commentary. When it's going on in the private sector, there's less of that clear ventilation of what's going on and sort of assessment of how that fits with the culture and whether culture is ready for it and what the ethical concerns are. So there's not a very democratic engagement with these substantial developments in science and technology that are going on. And so one worries a little bit about that, like it is sort of starting to diverge from the values of society. On the other hand, what exactly you're going to do? It's hard to imagine. This is a longstanding concern about, well, you don't want to ban science, like just because yeah. it might have certain effect. Most science almost always has sort of benefits and potential harms. And it's not productive to say, okay, well, we quit doing science and quit trying to learn about ourselves and things like that. I think that makes no sense. So this idea of the governance and the democratic engagement with the values underlying this work, we have to think about how we're going to do that properly. And I guess another component of this work being done in the private sector is the scope of the intellectual property protections we give to it. Should some of these innovations be kept and commercialized or should they be more open. And again, this is not a new problem. We've faced this with biotechnology and different mm -hmm. recombinant DNA. And, but it's something that we've got to think about here as well with a lot of this work going on within the private sector. Yeah, we live in this era of information where any kind of information you can think of is swapped back and forth for so many purposes. Just think about all your targeted marketing and all the information that you need to enter to use like different websites. You end up with an email inbox filled with spam and ads that are way too specific. I, for example, regularly get sent scientific product ads on my personal social media to a point that it's sometimes a little bit creepy. Now, if on top of that, I had a BCI implanted in my brain that could detect how my body's moving or what I'm saying at all times, and that could either be sold to a company or even just used as evidence against me. Now, that's even scarier. And we discuss these technologies mostly being developed in the private sector. So there is an incentive to actually monetize these technologies that is just much less prevalent in academia. But if we want it to be done in academia, it's not that it's impossible, but we need to actually fund academics properly. And that's a whole other conversation and a much more political one. For sure. I mean, privacy is such a concern and probably one of the scariest things to me about BCIs. What she mentioned about balancing enthusiasm and critiques about the field really drove it home for me. We really can't ignore the utility that science can have in the courtroom and other aspects of human life, but also we need to incorporate it in a way where we don't cause any harm to anyone, or at least minimize the harm as much as possible so the benefits of using these technologies outweighs the risks. All in all, I think neurolaw is a super promising field that has the potential to contribute to a more just and equitable society, but it also raises a number of concerns. 
As neural law continues to advance, I think we're likely to see the legal system rely on neuroscience more, and more to help make decisions. And it will be up to the neural law community to make sure this is all being done ethically and responsibly. Obviously, there's so much meaningful work being done in the field, and still so many gaps in knowledge. For those of you thinking, wow, I could really see myself working in this area, this next question is for you. So do you have any sort of advice for anyone, any young researchers interested in the field, how to get involved, or just different ways to sort of follow their interest in this field of neuro law? Yeah. So I guess one thing that I think would be really interesting and cool is to, I don't know, develop some form of short course or credential that students involved in neuroscience could take to just mm. like talk through all these issues. Because my experience is a lot of young scientists are actually really interested in all of this. And I think that sort of giving the neuroscientists the tools to engage more effectively in public policy making and also in communication of the science to the public, uh, sort of the kinds of things you guys are doing, but giving the young scientists the tools to engage sort of with public policy would be really, really valuable. So I think that's one thing. If I were a young neuroscientist interested in all of that, I would start to seek ways to understand, well, how does public policy work? What is the social context into which this work is going to go? And how do I participate in that discussion? I guess um, another thing I would suggest is that a lot of the neuroscience and technology-oriented journals, they allow for the publication of editorials and opinion pieces and sort of short social reflections where mm -hmm. you can raise these issues. And mm -hmm. so I think that the scientists should be writing those things, like thinking about those, writing them. And heck, if they don't understand law, then find a lawyer to co-write with and bridge those disciplines and get these kinds of discussions into the journals that the scientists are reading as well as into the public forum. That's what we're all about here at Think Twice, communication of science. Here's where you can reach Dr. Chandler if you're interested in learning more about her work or in connecting with her to follow up with some questions. Absolutely. So I have a website, which is just my first and last name, .ca. And I would mention also that I run a discussion group. It's sort of like a journal club, interdisciplinary journal club. Every couple of months, a group of people around the world get together to talk about these kinds of themes. We read a paper. We hear from usually a young scholar or publisher on a topic like this. And anybody can join and participate mm -hmm. if you're interested in the policy and the ethics. We That's what we talk about. Okay. And so you'll see discussion about that. It's called Mind Brain Law, and it's on my website. On that note, thank you for spending some time with me today, Elena. And a special thank you to Dr. Chandler. I hope our listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. And thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice. Thank you to the outreach program at the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. See you next time.